Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 132 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Not as always. Toby isn't always here. I make this point every time, and Bailey always is like, he's always here in spirit. That's yeah. true. Very true. But this time, Toby is actually here in the room with us. Also, next time you're in the bathroom pages, don't look in the mirror behind you, because I will always be there. <laughs> in spirit. Um, welcome. Welcome to our podcast studio. What do you think of it, Toby? Uh, okay, so Pedro's, I'm here. I don't know if you guys listened to the episode where we talked about they have a new studio, and holy moly, it is slightly better than recording in the back of the camper. <laughs> it's somewhere in. Central Florida. I will say that. It's lovely in here. The vibe. I did a quick vibe check. It's nice. We got I some good it. vibe levels. Good vibes only in here. Mm-hmm. We should have we have a sign that says on air. We should have one that says good vibes only. You know, I feel like if you invite the right people, you don't even need a sign to tell them how to vibe. You're right. Mm. That's why I am not invited. Aw, Andrew, you'll be here soon someday. There is a fourth chair that nobody sits in. Yeah. So it's it for could Elijah be and sometimes me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Famously. Um, Toby, you're in town. You're stopping over on your way to um, your next step. What That's is it? right. Northern California. Yeah. How do you feel about being here the weekend the Super Bowl is in town? Well, I sure hope I can leave Los Angeles. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about truckers not letting me leave. They're like, Toby, please stay. We love you on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're protesting, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, Yeah, no, it's it's amazing to be back. I love L.A. Um, I don't love when it's 88 degrees in February, but, you know, some of the thing. We went to the zoo today. That was fun. Yes. We took little Maggie to the zoo. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Oh, it was adorable. And... I don't think I have anything else to say about that either. It's just fun to watch her like discover and see the animal. And it's like, do you see it? And she points. I'm like, yeah. yeah. Well, but she also has the the small child's ability to focus, which is like, do you see it? And she's like, I do see the guardrail that is shiny. And you're like, okay, <laughs> there's a pack of like 80 flamingos right behind that. <laughs> there was the first time she saw a real elephant, she did not react. And we had to point to the picture of the elephant, like on the description in oh, front yeah. of it. And she's like, yeah, elephant, cool. And then we point and she's like, oh my God. You're also the last people in the zoo too. Yeah, we were walking around trying to find the giraffes, and suddenly we realized we were the only ones there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Dylan was like, what happens if you get trapped in a museum? <laughs> <laughs> the giraffe poked his head out. He's like, go home. Andrew, do you remember that time we got trapped in Versailles after it closed? Whoa. Oh, yeah, because we went out to like look for Marie Antoinette's petit whatever it was, the like little her, village she made. Yeah, her little hamlet that she made to play act being a peasant. Yeah, and we like we just didn't make we, we got out and like someone was like ushered the door. I forget exactly how it played out. I had completely forgotten that, Bailey. That that's rare that I remember something that you don't remember. Yeah, no, we had to the hamlet was closed, so we went back to the front and it was closed. So we went back and like had to go through like this back alley. Um was the back alley also a hall of mirrors? Ooh. But like, what if we stayed the night in Versailles? You guys definitely missed out on a mystical adventure. That's all I have to say. <laughs> it would have been in yeah. the gardens, not inside. But it's like you guys were standing on one side of the door and like the ghost of King Louis is like, all right, here we go. They're walking through. OK, <laughs> they're going to open the door and then you just turn around and you leave. And I was like, oh, Aww. le sad. Le sad. Mm-hmm. Um, does anybody have any shame to report? I do not. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> um, I don't have any shame. No, I do have a book recommendation. <gasps> we need a sound effect. Um, Andrew, please. Andrew, sound effect. 
Hacha! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I was especially happy to bring this one to the table because it is a YA um, mm. for Bailey. So I ba- Bailey uh, went on another podcast and talked some smack about me that I don't understand YA. I don't understand what it's like to be you YA. You were never a child. I, you don't have a child's I, joy. Specifically, <laughs> I was saying like realistic YA, like John Green YA, not fantasy YA. Anyway, this is a fantasy YA. <laughs> um, it is a fantasy YA, um, and it is called A Deadly Education Ooh. by Naomi Novik. I think probably m- way more than half our listeners are like, duh, we know about this book. But in case you don't, it's amazing. I'm only partway through it, but I enjoy it so much. I really wanted to bring it to the table. What I enjoy the most about it is one of my favorite books, as I've said on this podcast before, is The Magicians by Lev Grossman. I you were going to say Redwall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Clooney the Scourge, he really gets up to some stuff in this deadly education. Um, uh, yeah, so The Magicians, I like because I feel like it is a, it's not entirely a take on Harry Potter, but it, you know, it can be broadly described as Harry Potter for adults. Right. And this is very much YA, but I feel like Naomi Novik is making a joke to all the readers where it's like, I think everyone who's read Harry Potter has thought, holy moly, those teachers have no regard for the kids' safety. Yeah. It's incredibly dangerous to be in Hogwarts. They have these stairs that are like constantly detaching from themselves and <laughs> yeah. like allowing students to plunge hundreds of feet to their death. So this is set in a setting where what if this school was actually designed to kill you, to like weed out the weak? Whoa. And they have like, instead of a student body of whatever Hogwarts had, like 200, and, 200 to 300 students, they have thousands of students, but only like 30 of each graduating class make it to graduation. So it's like um, Harry Potter meets Hunger Games. Meets Squid Games. Yes, all of those things. Wow. And a really fun magic system and a fun YA protagonist who's snarky and actually funny. And I am really enjoying it. So I wanted to recommend it to you, Bailey, and to our listeners. Well, little do you know, Toby, that the second half of that book is all descriptions of the Paris uh, sewer system. So <laughs> I know Bailey's going to be into that. Oh, yeah. You said it was part of a trilogy? or It is. It, I believe it's the first in a trilogy. I think the second one is already out. Okay. I, but I'm, I'm only, you know, in the first one. So I can't oh. vouch for anything beyond that. Well, I'm into it. I, I've read one Naomi Novak called, I think it's called Spinning Silver, which was sexy Rumpelstiltskin. Um, and How does that... How does that work? I mean, that's regular Rumpelstiltskin <laughs> to me. <laughs> I think he was the love interest, but also Rumpelstiltskin. I don't really remember, but I remember liking the book. Basically, call me by your name or call me by my name. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, okay, cool. Um, I'm, do you have the book? Can I steal it from you? Are you nope. I'm, re- I'm literally reading it. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's in the camper. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. It's driving away from you after the Super Bowl. <gasps> Wait, you know what you're doing? You're tempting me to get shame. You are? Maybe. Oh. We'll see if it, uh, we'll see. Check in next time, Pedros. <gasps> oh. It's so, just, you know, it's right up your alley. It's short. It's fun. Toby, do you think it was shame when I got a book from the Little Free Library, read it, and put it back? Yes. <gasps> <laughs> it's a respect thing, Bailey. You're not supposed to add any books. <laughs> I, I think I'm somewhere between Dylan and Andrew because I do think that that was shame. However, I think it's okay that you weed it out. Some, uh, some from your to-read list. Fair. I mean, as someone who's going to be reading how football explains the world, <laughs> <laughs> soccer's globalization, I think everybody should have every book and it should never, <laughs> anything is possible. Kevin Garnett. Andrew, I was updating the story graph and trying to find your book and I, you have like three nonfiction books about soccer on your list. I maybe was in a class in college that involved soccer and the teacher, I found out very quickly, gave everybody an A no matter how hard you worked on something. So after three projects where I worked very hard, I did not work very hard on the rest of the reading. Hmm. Ah, 
Fair enough. What was the class called? Let me guess. Let me guess. Soccer in the modern world. I'm going to say... Kicking... S- soccer goals. <laughs> no. Uh, it was called Soccer, Shakespeare, Ska, and Skinheads. Like British popular culture and how it reflects to other things. I forget the like actual academic subtitle, but the heading was Soccer, Shakespeare, Ska, and Skinheads. Wait, that, is Ska would... the second one in there? Ska. Yeah. yeah, Ska. Soccer, Shakespeare, Ska, and Skinheads. Okay, just double checking. That sounds what, Dylan, dope, class. I feel like you're disrespecting Ska. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I would never disrespect Ska. How dare you? <laughs> what, uh, what was, do you remember what the book relating to Ska was? Ooh, I think it, it was a book called Subculture. Uh and then I think ska was actually mo- maybe more. We did we actually did musical analysis of Real Big Fish. <laughs> yeah, Real Big Fish, and we did a lot of skanking. Mm-hmm. Less than Jake. Mm-hmm. Other ones. Mm-hmm. There are other ones, mm-hmm. right? That's it. That's oh. the whole list. Uh, anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, it's time for our reviews this week on the podcast. Toby read a book. Um, hopefully, it took him less than a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It um, did. What book did you read, Toby? I read The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Ooh, Didion, Didion, Didion. Didion, my wayward son. Ooh, I like that Ooh. one. Okay, yeah. So as we as we always do, I'm going to start out with a log line. Sorry, as I always do, because you guys don't do log lines anymore. I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, here we go. In The Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion applies her fearsome intellect and cool, remote approach to research and writing to one of the messiest and most difficult of human experiences, that of sudden and deep grief. Mm. So this is a memoir. Um, So plot-wise, there's just a few things that happen, and they happen right up at the top. And I'm going to tell you them right now. Okay. In late December of 2003, uh, Joan Didion's daughter, Quintana, uh, was hospitalized in New York with walking pneumonia, which subsequently develops into septic shock um, and leaves her literally on the brink of death, unconscious and kept alive by machines. So she's locked in the hospital. The situation is very serious. How old is the daughter? I believe she's in her mid-30s. And it's extra tragic because she got married like five months before this, six months before this. Uh Um, In the middle of all this and her hospitalization, Didion's husband, John Dunn, the writer, dies of a massive heart attack at their home in New York. The year after these events is what Didion chronicles in this book, her year of magical thinking, which refers to the kind of thinking children engage in, i.e. that they can literally change the world by thinking about things. So sometimes children get frustrated because they want to literally change the world to be more like what they think it will be. Is it like when I'm like, okay, if the next car that drives by is red, then I'm going to ace this test? I am not an expert enough in the definition of magical thinking to say if that's, but it's more like, you know, imaginary friends and kind of not knowing if that's real or not. Mm. An example, a good example from the book, and thank you for prompting me for this. Um, and a prime example, I think a lot of people talk about this book, is her husband dies and she is very aware. She's very intellectual. She's what she calls, she calls herself a cool customer because mm-hmm. of her ability to kind of present a very together appearance to the outside world. However, she finds herself doing things like throwing away most of his clothes, mm-hmm. but keeping a couple pairs of shoes because she's like, oh, he'll need those. Oh, okay. And so that kind of thinking where it's like, well, as long as I keep these shoes, there's like a small chance that he'll come back. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of magical thinking that she finds herself engaging in. And for Joan Didion in particular, who prides herself on being a very calm, about the facts person, it's shocking to her to kind of engage in this thinking. So this book for me um, has four major parts to it. They're not like in sequential order, but they are four major themes or stuff she writes about in the book. The first one is my elf, and it's a huge elf. And the last three are orcs. They're quibbles, but 
important quibbles. So what would we say is a little orc, like a little, like a goblin? A goblin. An orclet? An orclet. Okay. So the first, um, the first part and the most uh, amazing part to me is this clear, lucid, incredibly well-written ideas about grief and loss and the process of grieving that often approach emotionality without ever really crossing the line over into emotionality. This, for me, is the meat of the book. It's what I wanted the book to be about. It's what I really enjoyed. Um, and her writing crosses over into the breathtaking in, in certain areas. It's truly incredible. And I'm going to read um, a quote to give you an idea of what this is like. Okay. Grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. We anticipate, we know, that someone close to us could die, but we do not look beyond the few days or weeks that immediately follow such an imagined death. We misconstrue the nature of even those few days or weeks. We might expect that if the death is sudden to feel shock. We do not expect the shock to be obliterative, dislocating to both body and mind. We might expect that we will be prostate, inconsolable, crazy with loss. We do not expect to be literally crazy, cool customers who believe that their husband is about to return and need his shoes. In the version of grief we imagine, the model will be healing. A certain forward movement will prevail. The worst days will be the earliest days. We imagine that the moment to most severely test us will be the funeral, after which this hypothetical healing will take place. When we anticipate the funeral, we wonder about failing to get through it, rise to the occasion, exhibit the strength that invariably gets mentioned as the correct response to death. We anticipate needing to steal ourselves for the moment. Will I be able to greet people? Will I be able to leave the scene? Will I be able even to get dressed that day? We have no way of knowing that this will not be the issue. We have no way of knowing that the funeral itself will be anodyne, a kind of narcotic regression in which we are wrapped in the care of others and the gravity and meaning of the occasion. Nor can we know ahead of the fact, and here lies the heart of the difference between grief as we imagine it and grief as it is, the unending absence that follows, the void, the very opposite of meaning, the relentless succession of moments during which we will confront the experience of meaninglessness itself. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Devastating. Devastating. It's also very kind of like inward looking, like a little bit removed, a little bit like Didion is kind of examining herself in the mirror, like, you know, nose to nose and look, counting her pores. And mm-hmm. those parts of the book are spectacular, like truly holy moly, wow, I can't believe someone can write like this. So okay. that's my elf. So really nice elf, like a Legolas. Like, like a prime elf, Legolas style. <laughs> okay. Shaking his blonde hair around in the breeze. Um, another big part of the book, number two, and this starts to descend into my orcs. Goblins, um, goblins. Goblins, excuse me. Um, there's a lot of research, like a lot of research. Uh, quotes from research material that D- Didion pulls about grief. Quotes from books about sickness and hospitals, about everything she can look up to try and deal with her situation and Quintana's situation. While some of this is interesting, it often falls extremely flat to me compared to the pure thoughts of Didion about grief. And there is a lot of research, a lot of quotes, a lot of, to me, stuff that distracted from what I was just like, no, I want to hear more of what Didion thinks. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear these sometimes a little random seeming quotes. Okay. Number three, there are a lot of in-depth descriptions of the actions that Didion takes to try and save Quintana. Quintana's health worsens throughout the book. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of hospitals that Didion has to deal with, a lot of really, really specific information about what's wrong in her brain and 
the specific injury and the specific medication down to like lists of prescriptions. And I understand why Didion is giving us all this information because she is trying to put us in her head, right? Like Didion is a smart person who believed that she had a firm grip on the world and this is a situation in which she has no power whatsoever. So she is trying, she's driving herself crazy trying to have some kind of control. I get it. But it's very long. It's it's in a short book. There's a lot of information about specific prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and number four, that is my biggest orc. And I think it might not have hit me so hard except for the pandemic and just kind of how maybe the global mood. There's a lot of like celebrations of her and her husband's life, which is fine. But that entails a lot of like living it up very, very rich LA person style in like the 80s and 90s. Lots of Corvettes, lots of fancy restaurants, lots of crazy international travel at the drop of a hat, a lot of name dropping. Mm -hmm. Um, That again is so distracting because in these personal, intimate thoughts about grief, I feel really connected to Diddy and I really feel like, oh, this is universal. And then I feel so distanced from her when she's talking about the stuff that to modern readers can seem a little gauche. It, it, it really distanced me. And there was, again, a lot of it. Okay. Um, all in all, I found this book um, hard to connect with a lot of the time because, as I mentioned, like one part I really loved and then the three other major parts I found hard to connect with quite mm-hmm. a lot. My big suspicion is that if I had read a lot of Didion before this, mm-hmm. I would have been much better prepared. And especially if I had been like a contemporary of Didion. So if I had kind of lived her life alongside her, known her as a big figure, maybe read some of her journalism and knew that her personality was going to kind of be this way, I would have been much better prepared and probably loved this book. So yeah, that that is my overall feeling of the book is that parts of it were really sublimely incredible. And a lot of it I, I found hard to connect with. I think my hopes were really high for this book as well. Mm-hmm. So it's always a little bit of like a, I'm always like looking around the room like, what? no, I, I want it to be so good. But you know, in the end, I'm going to give it three stars. Well, you know, three stars is fine. Yeah. You know, it's mixed bag. That's exactly. okay. Andrew, I'm curious because I know you've read this too. Do you remember what you thought about the book? I remember liking it. I remember having the feeling that it dragged at certain points. I don't remember specifically what I felt did. And maybe what Toby has talked about sort of gives a, a clue into what that would be. I gave it four stars. I just looked it up on my old Goodreads to check. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think for me, the transcendence of some of her, her writing overshadowed it to get it a little higher. But, you know, it, yeah. it was about eight years ago I read it at this point. So it's hard to get more specific than that. Fair okay, enough. Cool. All right. Well, Andrew, do you have any facts on Miss Joan Didion? I do. I do have some facts. All right. So, Joan Didion was born on December 5th, 1934 in Sacramento, California. Sacktown. Just like Lady Bird. Um, So, she grew up in a military family. Uh, After, you know, preschool and kindergarten, she moved around a lot. Um, Talks about uh, always feeling a little bit like an outsider because she was always having to meet new people, uh, like reestablish it. She actually uh, wrote a, a memoir in 2003 called Where I Was From, which talks specifically about that. By the time she was entering like high school age, she settled firmly again in Sacramento, uh, though her father was sort of absent because he, he went to Detroit during World War II to negotiate defense contracts. Mm. Mm. Yeah, me too. 
Um, <laughs> she graduated high school and then went on to study at the University of California, Berkeley. Go Golden Bears. Um, while she was there, she won something called the Prix de Paris Essay Contest, which is sponsored by Vogue. And part of winning, this is how it used to happen, y'all. Uh, for winning this essay contest from Vogue, she got a job as a research assistant for Vogue and then ended up having a whole career at Vogue uh, wow. for the next eight years based on winning this essay contest while she was still a senior at uh, at UC Berkeley. Sweet. Yeah, pretty cool. Um, so she relocated to New York during that. Um, you can read a little bit about that in uh, if you ever read Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which is a collection of her writings from, I think, 1968. I think it's called Goodbye to All That. It's an essay that talks about her moving to New York. Any who's will be. Um, <laughs> while she was working at Vogue, uh, she actually wrote her first novel, which came out toward, during the tail end of her time there, called Run River, which is about Sacramento and a family who lives there. So she clearly always said California on the brain. Someone who helped her uh, edit that book and put it together was an, a friend and fellow writer named John Gregory Dunn. Oh. Ooh, his name you might have heard already. Yes, yes, this is her future husband. They married in 1964 and moved to Los Angeles. How did he get out of the friend zone? Do you have that information? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do not have that information to hand. Even, but... even worse than the friend zone is the dreaded editor zone. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is less sexy than an editor. Sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it worked out. They got married. They lived in Los Angeles. Initially, they didn't plan to stay in Los Angeles that long, but they ended up living there for 20 years. Uh, so best laid plans. <laughs> Two years into their marriage, they adopted a daughter um, whose name is Quintana Rue, who Toby has already mentioned. And through this whole time, uh, she's writing for different magazines. She's publishing in a, in a variety of them after leaving Vogue. She also wrote for a bunch of different ones, including The New Yorker. They bounced around the Los Angeles area, living in Los Feliz and Malibu and Brentwood, all over the place. As I referenced, uh, one of her first big books, other than the, the novel that she already wrote called Run River, was called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. It came out in 1968. It was a collection of some of her writings for different journalistic publications. It's very well thought of, I can say, particularly in composition classes at liberal arts colleges because I had to read it about three different times. Hmm. Uh, she also wrote fiction, including in 1970. She published Play It As It Lays. This was also made into a film in 1972, uh, which starred Anthony Perkins in Tuesday Weld, and she wrote the screenplay with her husband. They also wrote the screenplay for the 1976 version of A Star Is Born. Take that, Bradley Cooper. He could have had done and Didion. <laughs> Other things that she published around this time uh, were a Book of Common Prayer, The White Album with Salvador, and Democracy. During all this time, she's she's publishing work. Uh, she's becoming both known as a writer and also as sort of a public figure. Notably, she's one of the first people. In fact, the article I read lists her as the first like mainstream person to question the veracity of uh, the Central Park Five's convictions oh, and okay. uh, whether that was a miscarriage of justice. So she was on the forefront of saying that, that they were wrongly convicted. And this brings us to the year of magical thinking, the events of which kick off in 2003 as Toby walked through. She wrote the book as a sort of way to navigate the grief process. Uh, It was met with wide acclaim um, and was even turned into a Broadway play that starred Vanessa Redgrave. Wide acclaim except Toby. Mm -hmm. I am am well on the outside on this one, Patris. (laughs) Well on the outside. Unfortunately, this wasn't the last tragedy in her life. I don't want to spoil the events of uh, your magical thinking, but let's just say that there is a follow-up book called Blue Nights, which deals with another tragedy that comes out of it, which came out in 2011. 
She continued publishing up until her death in 2021, which happened on December 23rd. She very recently passed away at the age of 87 um, from complications from Parkinson's. But she published a, a collection of 12 essays in 2021 called Let Me Tell You What I Mean. Um, she also had a documentary made of her on Netflix called Joan Didion, The Center Will Not Hold. Also, this is a fun fact about Joan Didion. A photo of Didion shot by Jürgen Teller was used as part of the spring-summer 2015 campaign of the luxury French brand Celine and the clothing company Gap. Uh, featured her in a 1989 campaign. So she also was a bit of a style icon, aside from being a uh, a brain icon. Cool. She's a very cool lady. Yeah, cool lady. Just a couple final facts about Didion. She listed her influences primarily as Ernest Hemingway, who she used to spend time typing when she was a kid, like as an adolescent, to try to understand his sentence structures. She would like type on a typewriter to figure that. it out. Respect. Yeah, respect. I could see Bailey doing that. <laughs> uh, other influences included Henry James and George Eliot. And one last thing I'll say about her writing process to, to end our, our Didion-arama uh, is <laughs> that when she was writing a book, she would sleep in the same room as the pages of her book that she had typed because she did didn't want to be too far away from them because she felt she could not then make proper edits. Mm, Love it. Interesting. That's a cool fact. Excellent facts, Andrew. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Good facts, Andrew. So that is The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Three stars from Toby. Four stars from everyone else. <laughs> I'd say five stars from everyone else. Maybe four stars from Andrew. <laughs> well, it's time we said goodbye to all that. Ooh. Ooh, and hello to whatever Bailey was reading. Did you read a book? <laughs> <laughs> nice transition. Yes, I did read a book. It is a new book. I was excited <gasps> that it was picked off um, the list because mm-hmm. I just bought it. Um, and it is called The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. Starlingling bird. So at the end of last year, there was a list. I think it was on Goodreads. These are the top horror books you should be reading that came out this year. Mm-hmm. So this was on on the list, and I put it on my to read list and then bought it. Yes, you, ma- you make it sound like you didn't have a choice. It's like here's the thing. Goodreads said these are the books I had to horror books I had to read, and so I had to go out and buy it. I'm- Bailey has done so many crazy things because the internet says the ten things you have to do before you die, and then oh, Bailey's well, off. You I know? mean, yeah, that's how it works, right? You have to. If mm-hmm. I don't forward this on several people will die. I like Jane Lawrence. Uh, this book came out, I believe, last year. Um, it is a gothic horror book, but as I said, it was just written. So it's written in the style of like Rebecca or Haunting of Hill House. Oh, guys, remember when we all read Rebecca? Yeah. Remember when Rebecca was dope? Guys, go back and re-listen to the Rebecca episode. <laughs> that book is so good. <laughs> okay, so here's the premise. And this is another reason why I got interested in the book. So it follows, you'll never guess who. Jane Lawrence. Oh, that's correct, Jane Lawrence. Caitlin Starling? <laughs> <laughs> Jane Lawrence. Um, she is an orphan. She is living... It takes place in um, this country that's not Britain. It's called Brelton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No commentary? No, um, I, I felt like our laughs were the commentary <laughs> that you needed, but okay. Um, and in this world, it it's like gothic, but it's the 1940s. Elaborate. This explains a fact I had that I was very confused by. Okay. <laughs> so, like, Did it say she was born in like New Hampshire or something? Well, no, she lives in Brelton. <laughs> Good fantasy name, Dylan. <laughs> but um, they were in a war against Russia, but it's not Russia. It's like Ruska. And during it, there was gassing. Um, mm-hmm. of the city where she lived, which is not Cambridge. It's like Camhurst or something, but basically Cambridge. It's called okay. London. The London is called Lindleton. <laughs> anyway, that's neither here nor there. Regardless, her parents um, were killed during this gas Got attack. It. So, okay. But it's gothic-y, but it's really the 1940s in terms of like, there's gas masks in this world. Got it. Okay. So, uh, My Chemical Romance video is what you're saying. <laughs> wow. 
but yes. Let the lady speak. <laughs> okay, so we got Jane Lawrence. When she- I was in Brelton, <laughs> okay. my father died of a gas attack. <sighs> okay, okay, so then Jane Lawrence joins the Black Parade. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, Jane Lawrence is an orphan. Um, her, the people who are taking care of her are going to move to a different city, and she doesn't want to go with them. She wants to stay where she is, but she can't do that because she doesn't have any means or money. So mm-hmm. she decides the best thing to do is to get married. Okay, but she's kind of like I don't know if she's asexual, but she definitely has no real interest in marriage. It's all just like I'm going to do this in order to stay where I am. So she finds a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctor's name Augustine Lawrence, mm-hmm. um, and she proposes to him. She's like, "Listen, I noticed that you're unmarried. I'm also unmarried. Let's get married, um, and then like people won't be asking questions about why we're unmarried. But like you can stay in your house, and I'll sleep here. You're a doctor. I'll sleep at the surgery. I'll I'll do your books because I'm also in a accountant mm-hmm. um whatever and he's like mm. at, f- at first he's like i don't know but she, but then he's like okay i'll do it but there's a condition uh-oh is it a creepy gothic condition page 51 oh a quote you will never stay the night at lindridge hall oh that's God, so no. gothic his expression took on a darkness that she'd never seen before. Please understand that, he said, voice softening. Whatever else may or may not change about our arrangement, that needs to remain true. You will never stay the night at Lindridge Hall, and I always will. I mean, I'm hooked. Right? I, would, I would be reading the heck out of this book right now. I'd right? be like, page turn, let's go, exactly. light a candle. Because that's where my ex-wife, Rebecca, lived. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got like this... Rebecca vibe. It also has yeah. a little bit of like Bluebeard, like don't go in that room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't go in that room. Yeah. Feels very Jane Eyre too. Yep, Jane mm-hmm. Eyre. Does she have a string around her neck that she can't ever remove? Mm, on that I don't one. know. Green ribbon around the neck. Okay, so great premise, right? Yep. Like you said, you're hooked right in. Mm-hmm. And what also complicates it is she sets out with it just being a business arrangement, but then they start to fall in love with each other a little mm-hmm. bit. Oh, wait. So they broke the one rule. Yeah. <laughs> never fall in love. <laughs> never fall in love. Don't go into my house and never fall in love. Mm, did, they, did they call it catching feelings in 1940s Burton? <laughs> okay. So that's the premise. And I was turning pages, going quick, 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 really into it. Yeah. I loved the gothic world. There's this really great scene where they start to catch feelings, as you say, mm-hmm. when she's helping out during a surgery. So it, it oh. sort of combines the like gross, visceral body horror with this love that's very gothic to me. Yeah. Um, another example is when they get married, he uses um, as the wedding ring, it's fashioned from a piece of bone from somebody <laughs> that he had operated on who had some kind of disease where he grew bones. Do you oh, know what I mean? Yeah. Like ossification. Oh, yeah. I do know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. There's a famous skeleton in the Hunterian Museum. It's just awful. It's like all his bones mm-hmm. are fused together and he had to like walk around like with his whole shoulders hunched and everything. Cause... Yeah, it's like you're trapped in your own body. Yeah. Um but she's like fascinated by it. So they're a good match because they are both into this creepy stuff. Yes, and also as Dylan said, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna repeat it. This is just so my chemical romance. <laughs> like this is like the you know, Downton Abbey, my chemical romance. <laughs> Were they was their registry at Hot Topic? Wow guys. <laughs> Hot topic. Um, <laughs> okay, so there's also, as I said, gothic stuff. There's elements of the occult. And also because of the time period, there's stuff where it's like, I need a drug to stay awake. I'll take this cocaine. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, uh-oh. Except it's called like Dr. Fuller's wake-up tonic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contains 100% cocaine. 
she's fascinated by math. Like I said, she's a, an accountant. So she's also reading about the concept of like dividing by zero. And it's like, whoa, blowing her mind. But it also kind of connects to the plot. So I love all of those aspects. I'm really into it. The this first, book sounds amazing. Yeah. The first two thirds, five stars, turning pages. Then we get to the last third. Still, still turning pages? Mm. So there's an expression in screenwriting and filmmaking, like a hat on a hat. Save the cat, hat on a hat, Pope in the pool, <laughs> more hats, put a hat on the Pope who's in the pool. Lots cats. of hats, hats, hats. <laughs> so, okay. So like, it's like, we already have a f- one weird thing where we bought into it. Mm-hmm. Then she keeps adding these other weird things where there's so many hats. Yeah. And by the end, in the last act, when she's trying to, let's just say, solve the problem that is presented. Yes. The problem a, that resides in the house at night. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Pedros. Anyway, when she's trying to solve the problem, it just gets so elaborate, all of the stuff. And it feels like she's speaking a different language where she's like, I have to do this and this and this. And if I do this, I'll be able to do this. And then I'll save the and I'm just like, you're losing me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea, but it felt a little bit like the author had the great concept, but didn't know how to nail it. It's like, how could I solve this problem? I don't know, throw all these things. And it was really disappointing, actually, because I was, like I said, really into it. And then by the end, it was taking me a really long time to get through the last 100 pages or so. Man. Yeah. But like, I really liked like the dynamic between the two and sort of like the gaslighting. Where he's like, he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, when we got married, we had this arrangement. So like, you shouldn't have, you mm-hmm. know, expected anything else or whatever. That's really interesting. It's just when you get into the weirder, weirder, more like supernatural, magical stuff where I'm like, mm, let's yeah. bring it back. Huh. Ultimately, I think it would, this would be sadly like a two and a half star. Ooh, that's severe. Wow. But I'm going to round up to a three because I really like the beginning. I just, I don't know if I would recommend this book because I was just so disappointed by the end. Yeah. So sadly, I'm going to give this one three stars. Um, But I looked on Goodreads. It's pretty well split. Three stars is definitely like the most popular rating. Mm -hmm. But there are people that give it five stars. There are people that give it one star. Who knows? You might like it. Yeah. I do have some information to console you. Okay. Toot, 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 three star central. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're pulling in. Yeah, three stars. Andrew, do you have any facts on Caitlin Starling? I know she's a new writer. <laughs> I mean, I kind of have some facts on Caitlin Starling. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay. So let's start, like any good facts, with what Caitlin Starling has written on her website, which is this. This is the, the entirety of the bio on the website. Caitlin Starling is the nationally best-selling author of Death of Jane Lawrence 2021, as well as the Bram Stoker-nominated and LOHF award-winning The Luminous Dead 2019. Her other works of genre-hopping horror and speculative fiction include Yellow Jessamine and a novella in the Vampire the Masquerade collection, Walk Among Us. Her nonfiction has appeared in Nightmare, Uncanny, and Nightfire. Caitlin also works in narrative design and has been paid to invent body parts. She's always on the lookout for new ways to inflict insomnia. I mean, sounds like she really sticks to one genre. I mean, there may or may not be invented body parts in this. I don't know. Mm. Mm. The Fingo. <laughs> the double head. <laughs> this is why you guys are not paid to invent body parts. Uh, Fingo is a trademark of Burger Flat LLC. <laughs> So is that, that's all the facts you got? That's <laughs> <laughs> not all the facts. That's what she presents as as her bio on on her website. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot else on her, but I did find some <laughs> interviews, and I will bring that in. Um, okay. Her website does point to a lot of different interviews, some of which were podcasts, so I didn't feel comfortable listening to those and like transcribing what she wrote there. But here is an interview with Paul Samel, which talks specifically about the death of Jane Lawrence. Paul Samel asks, to start, what is the death of Jane Lawrence about? 
And where, <laughs> you straight up, I don't think, read the book, but that's fine. Oh, Paul. Paul and no. when and where does it take place? This is why I was really glad you answered my question, because this is what Caitlin says. Okay. Jane is a war orphan in a mismatch of late Victorian and post-World War II England. And mm. I didn't know how that worked. So thank you for describing it to me. Paul asks, uh, where did you get the idea for the death of Jane Lawrence? Starling answers, a combo of seeing Crimson Peak in theaters, growing up obsessed with Jane Eyre, and consuming every bit of medical esoterica I could for two plus decades. Did you know that the Discovery Health Channel used to air surgery footage pretty much all day long? That was formative. I, again, I'm not sure if Paul has read the book because his next question is this. It sounds like the death of Jane Lawrence. It sounds like the death of Jane Lawrence is a gothic horror story. Is that how you describe it? Oh, it is. Extremely. 100% gothic horror from top to bottom, though I suppose you could partially call it a cult horror? Maybe. Also, some other things mentioned, obviously, Discovery Health and Crimson Peak, but also Call the Midwife, The Young Doctor's Notebook, Penny Dreadful, and A Dark Song, as well as a few episodes of the last podcast on the left. That's All nice. Right. I like when uh, authors are a little bit more forthright with saying, like, yeah, I have influences from like, the last five, ten years. Or, like, watch a TV show. It's like, yeah. yeah, Penny Dreadful. It was a dope show. So Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of different things can influence your writing here. Like a lot of our, our friends that we've, we've dealt with so far, guess how this book came to be? That's right. NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo. <laughs> it's either NaNoWriMo or Joyce Carol Oates. There's no other option. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> no medium ground. You either were taught by Joyce Carol Oates or, or you did NaNoWriMo or you were like discovered as a prodigy for mm-hmm. some reason. Or you won a contest for Vogue and just cash that in. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we're getting off the rails here. Okay. Uh, so the seeds of her uh, writing her first novel, actually specifically uh, Yellow Jessamine, came from NaNoWriMo and she's used NaNoWriMo consistently as a way to generate new work as she as she goes on. I know you guys are, are wondering, when is this going to be made into a movie? I don't think there's any details made, but she does have a dream casting for Jane Lawrence. Is it Winona Ryder from 1992? No. Jane has always been Gwendolyn Christie in my head from the very start. She definitely has enough gravitas to pull off a largely solo film like Jane would have to be. For many of our listeners, who dis? Brienne of Tarth. Brienne of Tarth. Uh, okay. Her dream casting for Augustine, she's a little more wishy-washy on, but she says, maybe Hugh Dancy? Mm. Also, who dis? Hannibal. Hannibal. Got it. Basically, that's all I have. I'm so sorry. I wish there was more. On her website, she links to a lot of different podcasts where she'll go into more depth on things. She also writes essays a fair amount. Maybe by the next time she comes around on the to read list, we will have a Wikipedia page and I can give you some more like biographical firm details. But that's what I have for now. Nice. All right. Excellent facts, Andrew. So that is The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. Three stars. Three stars central today. Toot toot. Um, Andrew, do you also have a game for us? I do. I mean, it's sort of a game. We're going to play it, though. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. Yay. I get to actually look Bailey in the eyes when I beat her this time. Ah, you wish. All right. We'll see. <laughs> 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 uh, so the name of the game, I actually teased it earlier in the episode. Little did you know, it's called Diddy on My Wayward Son. Oh. Uh, okay. Joan Genrefied. Um okay. So we have a really extreme genre book in The Death of Jane Lawrence uh, by Caitlin mm-hmm. Starling. We have Joan Didion, very much grounded in her her real experiences. Mm-hmm. But I thought, what if we brought Joan into some more extreme versions of genre? So this is a game where your creativity is going to get you the win or the loss. We will see. I've created five different new Joan Didion personas. Uh, They each sort of encompass a different genre that's pretty extreme. And I want you to tell me how the Joan in this world 
is like a superhero or is magical or what what you, is unique about Joan in this new genre. Okay. Okay. I made some puns with Joan's name. Okay. That's yeah. what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So for each of the, uh, the, the genres, I have a, a name and we're just going to riff and see how it goes. Let's do it. We got All it. Right. Joan did an Iron Man. So that's uh, Joan Diddy Iron Man. Uh, she's mm-hmm. a superhero in this world. What powers does Joan Diddy Iron Man have and what makes her or stand out amongst her superhero peers? Well, her hands are typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Joan Diddy Iron one. Hands. Um, I would say uh, there's quite a few uh, iconic pictures of Joan Didion, and often she is smoking those cigarettes. So I'd say she's blasting around like Iron Man, but she just trails <laughs> plumes of cigarette smoke from her feet. Well, I say her hands are typewriters, and she just bangs them together. <laughs> I just imagine Jeff Bridges yelling at somebody where it's like, Joan Didion wrote this memoir with scraps of research. <laughs> so yeah, which one did you like best? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I like... <laughs> Joan Didion with typewriters for hands because I feel like no. she could actually she could actually hit bad guys with those and that yeah. would be helpful and flying would be helpful but she wouldn't be allowed in a lot of places because of the tobacco smoke she's outside she's <laughs> flying around outside oh no okay Bailey you have one point congratulations great start you guys Excellent ready for the next job, one Bailey. yes because yeah. we're going to the wild west with the Joan Ranger <laughs> well, how does how does Joan Didion rock out in the wild west before Bailey says it, she rides around on a giant typewriter and she's a typewriter for a 10-gallon hat and she um, shoots uh, typewriter keys at her enemies. All right. I think Joan Ranger lives in the little town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. <laughs> the wild west of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yes. Suburb of Allentown. Yep. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, Joan, you're not in the wild west. And she's like, my 10-gallon hat says I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's mine. That's great. <laughs> uh, I'd imagine that she uh, walks into town, but she has actually like really haute uh, chaps and like high heels with spurs on them. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. She's very fashionable still. That's a really good mm-hmm. one. All right. I think that Dylan wins that one because Bailey's yeah, is think... nonsense and Toby's is <laughs> even more than nonsense than Bailey's. Well, <laughs> so mine's Dylan just revenge. Point. <laughs> uh, so Dylan and Bailey each have one point, but guess what? There's still three more rounds of this. It's anyone's game. Oh, okay. Okay. And Toby, I think you'll like this one. We enter the realm of high fantasy with yes. Gandalf the Joan. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf the Joan. Yeah, I imagine her doing the research that was that scene where Gandalf has to go to the library to research the... Um, I was going to do this. Has to research the ring, except she's just like smoking like a cigarette on those like long cigarette holders. Yeah. And then an elf comes in and it's like, oh, you can't smoke here. And she just keeps going. Mm-hmm. So my Gandalf the Joan is that she has really long hair, right? That's It's brown hair, right? Does she have brown hair? I believe so. Anyway, she goes in to her editor's office and they give her back her manuscript and she slams her giant cigarette and says, <laughs> you shall not revise. <laughs> Um, no, my, that was good, guys. And my that special really power <laughs> is when she's in the woods and the hobbits come upon her and they're like, oh, are you Gandalf the Jane? And she's like, who is that? I'm Gandalf the Joan. <laughs> oh, I get it. 
<laughs> that is weird when he's yeah, like... Yeah, he's, he's like, who's Gandalf the Grey? I'm Gandalf the White. <laughs> Not related at all. <laughs> I obviously didn't read the books, and when I saw that scene in the movie, I legit thought that he was the twin of Gandalf. <laughs> We're supposed to be two separate people. Like, is he because he acts with, like it. Is he messing with us? Oh, my twin brother? I hate that guy. All right, who wins, Andrew? All right, that was all very even, and to, to keep the interest going, I think, Toby, you get the points there, because I think you would have made the same joke that Dylan did, and you made a separate joke that was also good. Good job. Thank you very much. Touching. Okay. <laughs> Bailey doesn't agree. All right. Well, hey, Bailey, you just read a gothic horror book. The next one's gothic horror. Joan Ooh. Didion, Vampire Hunter. Bring it on. Mm. <laughs> also known as the Year of Magical Van Helsing. <laughs> yes. She uses um, blessed waters from the Sacramento River to fight vampires. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So what she does, she's a very specific vampire hunter. She pays to have vampires flown out to her home in Malibu and <laughs> just walks them around on the beach until they die. Wow. She tricks them with like very intriguing anecdotes, anecdotes and they lose track of time. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, she's um, Joan Diddy and vampire hunter, but really she just walks around parties and just name drops all the vampires she's killed. Like, oh, <laughs> Dracula. Heard of him? What about... Smackula. Smackula. <laughs> What? What Count Dracula. What, what's his name? Nosferatu? I met Nosferatu <laughs> in grad school. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Those are all very good. I'm going to give a half point each to Dylan and Toby because together they came up with my my favorite idea, walking the, the beaches of Malibu until they lo- lose track of time and then <laughs> thus killing the vampire. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so, okay. Good job, so Bailey's guys. at one. Toby and Dylan are both at one and a half, which means it's anyone's game because one point is still on the board. Ha-ha. Oh, man. It's almost though I gave these points this way to make it all up to this last answer. Um, Okay. All right. Here we go. Welcome to Didion Horizon, the final Joan Tier sci-fi slash space. She's a robot that has a typewriter on the front of her. <laughs> so basically just a computer. Her, her writing on a computer is what you're suggesting no, I'm there. Picturing, okay. I'm picturing Bender from Futurama, like, but with like a beep, boop, beep. On Interface. her chest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 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 I think she's going to be the Captain Logs editor. So, like, you'll hear, like, uh, oh my, it's exactly what I was going to say. You hear Captain Kirk, like, <laughs> you can't talking get about this Cap- again, Toby, <laughs> by saying you were going to say Captain's the same Log, thing. Captain Log, Star Date, 186. But then Teal come in and give, like, a female perspective of it to kind of make it a more well rounded, well thought Captain's Log. Mm-hmm. And well, and her grammar is on point. So yeah. she would, you know, the style, she'd give style notes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, okay. So it's just Joan Didion. But she looks like Worf. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Toby, you win the game. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> you win Diddy on my wayward son, aka Joan Genrefied. Congratulations on winning this game. <laughs> or more like facilitated conversation. <laughs> I was so ready for Indiana Jones. Oh. Oh, okay, next time. I feel like we just did a pitch session. Yeah, you I know. know. Yeah, and I had the best ideas. <laughs> I'm doing the best at this. I would say, I would say, in ten years, the the MCU is going to run out of old comic books, and we're going to see Joan typewriter hands <laughs> in a cinema near you. I would watch that. Uh, now is the time on the podcast where we choose new books at random from the shelf. It's time for the, the choosing. The choosing. Toby, we're glad that you're here, that we can see you in person. Mm-hmm. Unlike the main character of your next book, number 24, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. 
Ooh. Ooh. Wow. I'm really, I'm really pulling the uh, heavy hitters, aren't I? There you are. Yeah. I used to think that the horror movie in The Invisible Man was written by Ralph Ellison. You know, I think uh, a lot of people too. did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, have you read this one? I have not read this one, weirdly. Mm. I haven't either. I'm well, excited to hear about it. Pedro's tuning in uh, four weeks to hear my dumb butt talk about another really smart book. <laughs> are you going to give it two stars? <laughs> I know. Jeez. <laughs> All right. What about me? Well... Bailey, you have had to do a lot of work, so we figured that now's a nice time to give you a nice long vacation. Mm, okay. To number 122, To Paradise by Hanya Yanagahara. Oh. All right. This is another new book. I am really excited, Bailey. You know why? Because you loved it? I just finished it. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I, As everybody knows on this podcast, pages know. Love Little Life. I love the people in the trees. I got a new, brand new first edition signed copy, and I'm trying not to talk it up too much in my head, but I think it'll be okay. Well, that's exciting. I'm, I'm glad you get to read this. Yeah. yeah. And Billy, yeah. Don't, don't worry. I'm sure your soul will only be a little crushed. Well, mm-hmm. hopefully it's not like a little life where when I finish it, I laid on the ground <laughs> for like an hour. Oh, yeah. She read all of Little Life, and then I came in on her at the study, just lying face down. It's like, <laughs> so you finished the book? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> people who read A Little Life know. If you yeah, know, you know. It's true. Okay. Well, that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Two Paradise by Hanya Yanagahara and Andrew's reading some soccer book. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew's reading How Football Explained the World. Is that, wait, no, what is it? How Soccer Explains the World, An Unlikely Theory of Globalization by Franklin Four. National bestseller. Okay, people read it. Okay, great. Okay, yeah. Everybody's excited for to hear all about it. It, it was the number one bestseller in Breton. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go onto your podcast rating app of choice. If it's, you know, inside of a dank cellar in a gothic mansion, you still have to go down there and you still have to rate us five stars um, because we love it and it helps uh, the visibility of the podcast. So please do that. Also, if um, you really like us and you want us to be your friend, (laughs) uh, the best way for us to find new uh, listeners is word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell your husband who you don't think you're going to fall in love with, but you're not allowed in his house. uh, (laughs) Tell Tell everybody. Especially if you have a friend with typewriter hands, tell them. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro. Song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.